and welcome to Tell the Damn Story. I am Christopher Ryan, an award-winning hybrid author, teacher, multi-platform creative, and former award-winning journalist. Also on the mic is Kids Comic Con and the Color of Comics Exposition founder, Alex Simmons, an award winner since 1996. On Tell the Damn Story, we celebrate the trials and tribulations, the challenges and joys of creativity, and hopefully, along the way, help you decide how you want to tell your own damn story. And we have a special guest today to help us help you tell your damn stories. Welcome, Michael Uslan. Good to see you, sir. Thanks very much. Happy to be here, uh, especially with an old pal. Uh, Alex and I go back to the year zero together, I think. Yeah, I, I think uh, it was the forming the first rock, wasn't it? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Michael, what are, it's good to see you. Yeah. Uh, Alex, you tend to like to uh, set the stage. We're giving us a little background. And uh, could you do that for uh, for us? Well, today? I, you know, I like to set it, but there's so much to say about Michael. Uh, but I mean, folks, first off, listeners, those of you who are somehow not cued in, I will just start off by saying that Michael is uh, a, a multi-talented individual, a writer and an entrepreneur and a number of things. And he's most known as the producer, executive producer of all things Batman in terms of the film world, animation and live action. So that's obviously a topic that we're gonna, we're gonna talk about today. But there's a lot more to Michael Uslan, and I'm, rather than me rattling on about that, I'm gonna give us all a chance to learn uh, at the feet of this man here, or at his elbows, whichever way we wanna go at that. So uh, Michael, yeah, Michael and I, yeah, we, we met some time ago at uh, a Comic-Con, if I remember right, initially. And then we've crossed paths internationally and nationally in other ways. So let's start with Michael. Michael, Hi. Michael, Michael. Where are you? Where were you born? Joycey. Yeah, uh, Joycey I'm a, guy. I'm a blue. I'm a blue collar kid from New Jersey, and uh, grew up there just off the Jersey Shore. Um, it, it was a wonderful, magical place to grow up. And the most important thing about it for me was we were approximately one hour from New York City in an era in the 1950s, 60s, and early 70s when almost all the creators of the great comic book superheroes and the writers and the artists and the editors worked in New York City and lived either in New Jersey, in Manhattan, or on Long Island. So they were all within striking distance of me. And then when Comic-Cons first began, the first uh, big Comic-Con was held in New York City in a flea bag hotel downtown, and I was within striking distance, so I kind of have become the Forrest Gump of, uh, of comic books as a result. I, I've, been, I've been at all these important places, meeting all these important people, but I got the whole history of comics straight from the horse's mouth. It's fantastic. If we could go up to your childhood there in the you know, wonderful New Jersey. Um, you collected comic books like there was nobody's business. Matter of fact, legendarily, eventually amassing 30,000 comic books. So it was a good... uh, by the time I was 18. By the time okay. you were 18, okay? Yes. And what I want to know about that is, you know, you had to collect everything, you know, and read everything. So from all of that, absolute feasts of imagination right how did batman emerge as your number one guy to quote one of your movies 
Well, according to my mom, I learned to read from comics before I was four years old. Mm-hmm. Um, when I first became an avid comic book reader, ages four, five, six, seven, um, Superman was on TV. And uh, Batman comics, I remember at that age, were a little too scary looking. Okay. And, I, and I was more a Superman guy uh, because I felt familiar with Lois Lane and Jimmy Olsen and Perry White from the yeah. Superman show. And it was only when I was a much more mature, you know, seven, that, um, <laughs> I, that I gravitated more to Batman. And the reason, the reasons are simple. There's about three of them. Uh, number one, he had no superpowers. Okay. And even as a kid, I completely identified with him and I believed in him. And I believed in my heart of heart by the time I was eight, that if I studied hard, if I worked out really hard, and if my dad bought me a cool car, I could be this guy. (laughs) Um, He also had the most primal origin story that as a kid, as, as, as a seven, eight year old, I never thought about my parents dying. Sure. And then reading that in Batman, it had such a profound lifelong impact on me. Um, so it was it was the primal origin story. It was the fact that he had the greatest rogues gallery of supervillains in history, which were a major, major, major attraction for me. And lastly, you know, the car. <laughs> I mean, oh, you know, yeah. The car. <laughs> the car. Um, but, but those were the reasons I gravitated to Batman. It's fantastic. Wow. Um, eventually. You donated those 30000 to uh, your alma mater, if I remember, the University of Indiana. Is that well, correct? I will, I, will t- I will tell you now that two weeks from now, my wife and I are renting a box truck, and we are driving from New Jersey to Indiana with about 50 more boxes oh, of comic books and books, oh which will bring my total donation so far to the Lilly Library at, Indi- at Indiana University, which is, by the way, their rare book library. Sure. It has the Orson Welles collection, oh. Peter Bogdanovich collection, Glenn Close. Um, that'll bring my total to just over 45,000 at this wow. point. Um, I, I, under, I go ahead, please, sir. Well, I, under penalty of dismemberment, um, I <laughs> promised my son that I would save for him the first issues of every Marvel comic. Um, so those are going to him. Um, but, but everything else pretty much is going to Indiana. Wow. And, wow. and I have to ask you as an avid collector, not that, not, not that many, but um, do you wake up in the middle of the night missing them? Do you go to the rooms no. where they used to be? <laughs> how, how did you make peace with this? Uh, I made peace with it because DC started DC archives and Marvel started Marvel masterworks. So I have preserved in my, uh, in my office library, which takes up my entire third floor, you know, where I have the ladder going across the shelves, Uh, you know, so I have access to them. I can still go back and read them. And uh, I have kept some of the ones that were absolute, absolute magic in my life that were life impacting, if not life changing moments whether it's Superman Annual Number One, Marvel Tales Annual Number One, Secret Origins Annual Number One, um, The Death of Superman, um, the first new look Batman. I mean, we could go on and on and I can name all the comic books that had that sort of an impact on me because I was and still am a complete comic book geek. That's beautiful. Love it, love it. Uh, Can I I just want to just jump in here. So, um, nerd, 
the phrase nerd is now something that, and geek that, that, that people embrace now. Society embraces it at this point. But back when you and I were younger people and enjoying comics and watching George Reeves as Superman on television, things like that, if nerd or geek was thrown at us, it was thrown as an insult. So we had to find our own tribe. Did you, did you have a tribe, a group of friends that were as into comics and so forth as you were at that time? This is a penetrating question, Alex, and, and it's, it's, it's critically important, and fans today can't possibly understand this unless I set it up in the context of its time. And um, for the same reason, you know, who could believe that a kid in his 20s, me, could walk into DC Comics and buy the rights to Batman? I mean, it's impossible. It's inconceivable today until you set it in the context of the times. It's the only way you can explain it. When we were growing up, when I was growing up, 50s, 60s, into the early 70s, comic books were subversive. If you were reading comic books over the age of 12, it was subversive. People looked down at you. Uh, you were an oddball. Um, we had a whole generation of parents, teachers, and authority figures that bought into Dr. Frederick Wortham's book, Seduction of the Innocent, Hook, Line, and Sinker, and believed that comic books were the, the primary cause of the post-World War II rise of juvenile delinquency in America. Uh, Dr. Wortham, some of you might know, uh, also contended that any boy who read Batman would become a homosexual. Oh, my God. And, uh, and, and any, any girl who read Wonder Woman would become a lesbian. And that comic books cause asthma because children were staying indoors to read them instead of playing outside in the fresh air. That was the atmosphere we grew up with. And we embraced the subversiveness of it. We felt like we had a secret club that mainstream world didn't know about, that the rest of the kids in our school didn't really know about, except that small group of us that were so into comic books and into superheroes. And for me, it was my best friend, uh, Bobby, and my best friend, Barry. And then we found a few others, a small handful of others. And we formed our own comic book club in seventh grade. Uh, under the auspices of our beneficent seventh grade English teacher who thought we were, what we were doing was great. And she appreciated comic books for what they were. Very rare thing in an adult. Um, by the time I hit high school, if a girl found out that I was 14 or 15 or 16 and still reading and collecting comic books, I became date challenged. And it was just, <laughs> it was just considered that uncool. Um, the, you know, the guys in the high school fraternities or on the sports teams, you know, would, would make fun. And um, and that's what we lived with. So the, the only community was through the letters pages of comic books. Right. The only community was God bless Stan Lee for making it all personal and opening up a direct line of communication to us fans and talking not down to us. But, but on the same level. And oh, it, yeah. it, it just became this real, very personal relationship that we felt we were a part of something. And then I was there when comic book fandom began to organize. And that was due primarily due to two people who I consider to be the fathers of comic book fandom, Dr. Jerry Bales, a professor at Wayne State University, who due to his status gave us credibility to the mm -hmm. outside world, and Roy Thomas. And those two guys and the earliest fanzines, including Alter Ego, the Rockets Blast comic collector on the drawing board, um, which became the comic reader um, and others, 
that became our link. We, we were getting fan zines. We were getting these mimeographed, and, and you guys will have to explain Stapled to together, Brian, yeah, right, yeah. yeah. What that is. <laughs> yeah. These, these fanzines, the fans were making up, and that's where I was learning the history of comic book companies and superheroes and, and the backstory, and that there was this golden age, and, and everything crystallized when Jules Pfeiffer's book, The Great Comic Book uh, Superheroes, came out. And that was my first real look into the past. And it opened up the whole world of comic books to me and the history of comics. So that, that's how this all emerged. Uh, and that's why, because I was plugged into the early fanzines, I was tipped off that there was going to be this new thing called a comic book convention heading for New York <laughs> in July of 64, 65. And, uh, and that was life-changing. You know, the perfect segue, because this so that was all so rich. The plethora of information that you just shared, just name dropping and dates and all that, that's great, tells me that that's part of what was going on in your head when you hit college and did something that was, again, unique. And that was to create a curriculum about the comic book world or the characters. Can you can you sort of take us there? And I think Chris Chris had an interesting way of phrasing it. You said something like he was a, a graduate and undergraduate. No, no, that, that's true. You were an, a graduate and undergraduate student at the same time. I was an undergrad. I was a junior. Right yeah. when when the course came. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, now, uh, there, there are a few things out there in uh, uh, Google land that say that you are doing both graduate and undergraduate work at the same time. That baffled me. Okay. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Are you saying there's something that might not be true on the internet? Yes. yes. Inaccurate. Yes, Inaccurate. Is. Yes. Right. I'm glad that you cleared that up because I was, I was baffled. Okay. So you're in. I got to tell you what, one of my favorite quotations of all is from Abraham Lincoln, who said, never believe everything you read on the internet. <laughs> On the internet, yes. Well, Abe was Remember very that. much ahead of his time. Yes. How yes. right. was so, this uh, <laughs> so, so, inauguration, so, I think. Right, right um, exactly. So, so talk yes. about, yeah. So you're an undergraduate, and you get an opportunity to create what eventually becomes uh, the comic book in America. Um, and how do you go from sitting in the student's chair to teaching the course? I understand this was the late, what was this? By this time, it was 60, early 70s, 71. 71. So, you know, it, it was an era that is different than today, as you mentioned before. Um, but that still is a great switcheroo. How did that come about? Well, first, I got to credit my dad. Okay. Uh, my father was a stonemason. Mm. My dad dropped out of high school at age 16 to go to work to help support his family through the Depression. My father worked as a bricklayer six days a week from age 16 to age 80. Whoa. And my dad was an old world artist. My dad was a craftsman who loved what he did. He made such beautiful, magnificent fireplaces and chimneys and homes out of brick and mortar and marble. And um, you, you, when you're growing up in a house, and you see six days a week, your father getting up before dawn with a big smile on his face, and he can't wait to get to work. How can you not want that for your life? Mm -hmm. And when my brother Paul and I went to work for him in the summers, um, when we were growing up, it, we found out it was 
we were tarring foundations. We were carrying bags of cement and bricks. It, it was horrible. It, it was just horrible. But it made me realize I needed to find my bricks and stones, that I needed to have that passion that my dad had, that he turned into his lifelong work that made him so happy, no matter how hard it was. And my bricks and stones were comic books and superheroes uh, and ultimately movies, TV and animation. So um, it, it was that upbringing that made me look for an opening that I could put my foot in a door that was open just that much that crack to put my foot in it. And it came in my junior year at Indiana University in Bloomington. Um, it was the early 70s, a time of great experimentation on college campuses. That's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> um, but in response to those times, Indiana's College of Arts and Sciences began something called an experimental curriculum department. And the, the mission statement was, they didn't care if you were an undergrad, a professor, or who you were. They said, if you had an idea for a college course that had never been taught before and had the backing of a department on campus, you then had the right to appear before a dean and a panel of professors and pitch the course. And if they approved it, you could teach it on campus for up to three hours of credit. So I saw this as that crack in the door. So I sat down and said, okay, there's never in history in the world been a, a college accredited course on comic books. And there should be. So I wrote a syllabus, comic books as art. I don't have to tell you guys, as indigenous to this country as jazz, comic books as literature, the psychological impact of comic books on its audience, the fact that um, superheroes, I contended, were our modern day mythology. Mm -hmm. It's contemporary folklore. And my, um, my premise was as follows, quote, the ancient gods of Greece, Rome, and Egypt all still exist, except today they wear spandex and capes. And if you don't believe that, all I can tell you is the Greeks called him um, Poseidon. The Romans called him Neptune. I call him Aquaman. The Greeks called him Hermes. The Romans called him Mercury. I call him the Flash. And I went to the folklore department and Professor Henry Glassy, God bless him, Mm -hmm. said, Michael, you're absolutely right. It's the same plots, uh, conventional stock plots. It's, right. it's the, the, the same conventional stock characters. It's the same motifs. Uh, he said, it doesn't matter if you call it the Avengers and, or the Justice League or King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. It's the same stories. It's about brave warriors battling the demons and dragons of their day. He goes, I'll back you. So armed with that, I appeared before the, this dean wearing my original Spider-Man t-shirt, um, my hair down to my shoulders, my hippie love beads, uh, clutching a bunch of Superman and Batman and Spider-Man comics. And I went into um, this very dark mahogany conference room um, with a big conference table around it with professors sitting besides the dean at the end. And I, and I thought I had just walked into the secret sanctum of the Justice League. And as, as I appear before this Dean, he looks down at me over, he, he's got, did you ever see those little pair of half glasses yep. like all the people might wear at the edge of their nose? He looks yeah. down at me over and he goes, so you're the fellow who wants to teach a course on funny books at my university? <laughs> and I knew I was in deep uh, trouble. Um, <laughs> nice thing. Launched into the first pitch of my career. Um and the dean let me speak for about two minutes and he cuts me off. He goes, Mr. Uslin, stop. He goes, come on. He goes, really? 
I read comic books when I was a little kid. I read every issue of Superman I could get my hands on. But all comic books are, are cheap entertainment for little kids. Nothing more, nothing less. And I reject your theory. This was my life-changing moment because I could have bowed my head and picked up my funny books and turned around and walked out. But instead, figuring I had absolutely nothing to lose, I decided to stand my ground. And I said to the dean, may I, may I at least just ask you two questions? He said, go ahead. I said, are you familiar with the story of Moses? And he looked at me like I was crazy and goes, yes, yeah, so? I go, so very, very briefly, could you summarize for me the story of Moses? And he sat back in that chair and said, Mr. Uslan, I don't know what game you're playing here, um, but I'll play this with you. Um, the Hebrew people were being persecuted. Their firstborn were being slain. A Hebrew couple placed their infant son in a little wicker basket, sent him down the river Nile. There is discovered by an Egyptian family who raised him as their own son. When he, when he grows up and learns of his true heritage, he became a great hero to, I go, thank you, Dean. Stop. That was great. You mentioned before you read Superman comics when you were a kid. Do you remember the origin of Superman? He said, sure, the planet Krypton was about to blow up. A scientist and his wife placed their infant son in a little rocket ship and send him to Earth. There he's discovered by the Kents, who raised him as their own son. And with that, he stops, stares at me for what I will now swear to you was an eternity, and says, your course is accredited. Yes! <laughs> well done. And that gentlemen, is how I wound up being the world's first college professor of comic books. That is fantastic. <laughs> that is fantastic. So uh, how was it actually teaching the course? You're what, 19? It was, uh, yeah, it was yeah, phenomenal. So how was it? No, I was 20. I was 20. Oh. Um, it, it was phenomenal. Uh, well, there's another part to the story, if we have time. Let, wait, oh, no, let's so see. please. Yeah, we, <laughs> all right, we got time. Um um, I, I go back to my house. Uh, I, I am elated. And my mom says to me, you know, Michael, you can have the greatest creative ideas in the world, but no one will ever see your creative wares if you don't market them. And if you don't market yourself, <laughs> I said, Ma, I got no money. I'm a junior in Bloomington, Indiana what I call the oasis in the desert. Uh, you know, I, I, what, how, how do I market myself? And uh, she said, you're a smart boy. You'll figure it out. Um, so once again, figuring I had nothing to lose, I picked up the telephone and I called United Press International, which back then was as big a news syndicate as the Associated Press is today. I asked to speak Both to- Both of which we'll have to explain, but- <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> Um, this reporter gets on the phone and I started to scream at this guy. <laughs> I, said, I said, what's wrong with you? You, you? You're supposed to be the watchdogs of our society. This is outrageous. He says, calm down, sir. He goes, what are you talking about? I go, what am I talking about? Are you kidding me? I hear there's a course on comic books being taught at Indiana University. Are you telling me as a taxpayer in this state, they're using my money to teach our children comic books? This is outrageous. <laughs> This has got to be some sort of communist plot to subvert the youth of America. And I slammed down the phone. <laughs> so the results? So wrong, so right. Three days later, there's a knock on my door and it's a reporter from UPI with a cameraman. It took them three days to check the story out and to track me down. And they interviewed me. And this interview with 
photos was a third of a page long. It was picked up by virtually every newspaper in North America, a bunch in Europe. My phone started to ring off the hook. I was invited on radio talk shows. I was invited on TV talk shows. I never taught one class that wasn't filled with TV cameras and reporters. Uh, from the NBC Nightly News on, from Family Weekly Magazine to Playboy, everybody showed up. And as a result of that, about two weeks go by, I get a call one day, and it's this exuberant guy on the phone. Hi, is this Mike Uslin? Uh, yeah. Hi, I'm Mike. This is Stan Lee from Marvel <laughs> Comics in New York City. Yeah. And I, I always refer to this as my burning bush moment. <laughs> I was, I was talking to my God. He goes, Mike, I, I saw you on TV. I'm reading about you in newspapers. What you're doing is great for the entire comic book industry. How can I help you? Wow. And at that moment, my relationship with Stan changed from idol to mentor mm. and then blossomed from mentor into friend and evolved into from friend to creative associate and ended with me as one of the producers of his memorial at Grauman's Chinese Theater in Hollywood. Wow. Yeah, you know, I, I, you're, you're the kind of interview that should be done in, in like chapters. You know, like we're gonna, the next four episodes, we're gonna be interviewing. But <laughs> I, I, I wanna try, I wanna try and just move forward a little bit, just because I know you also looked at your watch. So I know we have a, a limited amount of time. Well, so you're 20, to, you, but I, I, I just gotta get us a little bit further where, I know we're going to the same place. Alex. Well, okay, go then go, 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 go ahead. Well, at around the same time, you're you're in that age range where you also walk into DC. Yeah. Okay. You're right. We're the, to the same place. And, and and do another outrageous pitch to buy the rights, the film rights to Batman. How, how did that happen? <laughs> I mean, again, like you said before, no one would understand this could never happen in, in 2021, but this was the 70s. Um, and you were 20 or 21. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, all right. So here's what we have to do first. First of all, we're going to expand this by 15 minutes, if this okay. is okay with you. That's fine with oh, us. Yeah. We'll make the satellites. Yeah. <laughs> we'll add an extra 15 minutes onto this because it's going to take it. Um, so... After Stan Lee called me that day, my next call a couple hours later came from Saul Harrison, vice president of DC Comics. And Saul said, Carmine Infantino and I have been listening to you on the radio. We've been reading about you in magazines. Um, You are a very innovative young man. We'd like to fly to New York City and discuss ways we might be able to work together. Uh, Okay. (laughs) Geek dream come true. Yeah. Um, They bring me to New York and they offer me a job at DC Comics. I'm still an undergrad, keep in mind. They hire me there. I will work there in New York with them for the summers. And they will put me on retainer when I go back to Indiana for school. Oh, look at you. It was unbelievable. Um, So um, I started DC Comics and I can't believe it, guys. It is, we are coming up on 50 years since I started at DC Comics. Um, I think this this coming May will be 50 years. Um, So I'm there and it's maybe my first week on the job. It's about six o'clock at night before I have to make the the, uh, train back to New Jersey. 
And I hear yelling and screaming for coming from down the hallway. I thought someone was being murdered. I go running down and it's from the editor's office of Denny O'Neill, whom, as, as you guys know, I was friendly with. He was my first guest speaker at my uh, comic book course. And Denny and I really bonded when he came out to Indiana. So I knew Denny really well, vice versa. And I go, Denny, are you okay? He goes, no, I'm not okay. I go, what's the matter? He goes, um, DC had canceled my comic book, The Shadow. And new sales figures, the latest sales figures just came in and they took a big jump up and they just uncanceled it. I said, so why isn't that good news? He said, because it puts us back on a production schedule, meaning the script is due tomorrow. And I don't have a script for the shadow. I don't have a story for the shadow. I don't even have an idea for a story for the shadow. And I said, oh, Denny, I have an idea for a shadow story. He said, you do? I didn't. But so what? <laughs> I saw that crack in the door open like that. And I just shoved my foot in. So then he says, all right, come in, sit down. He goes, what's your idea for a shadow story? I'm gonna, oh, I'm you're going to love gonna, it. Gonna, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, it, and that began a sequence and I'll, I'll spare you the details, but it wound up. He's after I, I, I concocted this pitch on the spot. He said to me, can you have a full script on my desk by 6 PM tomorrow? I said, not a problem. He says, go do it. I'm now a writer for DC Comics. By the way, that was the shadow number nine. Okay. My first professional comic book. Um, so I'm now a writer for DC Comics. A few weeks later, I'm walking down the hallway with my long hair and my geeky t-shirts. And who's coming toward me, but arguably one of the most important editors in the history of comic books, Julie Schwartz. Hmm. I, if you guys knew Julie, you know, he could be a real curmudgeon. I knew him. Um, yeah. You know, gruff exterior. Once he got to know him, he was a marshmallow, but he a gruff exterior. And he sees me coming toward me. He goes, hey, kid. I go, yes, Julie. He goes, I read your shadow script. I said, you did? He goes, yeah. It didn't stink. I go, whoa, thank <laughs> you so much. Thank Big you. compliment. He said, how'd you like to take a shot at writing Batman? I still get the chills. This dream I had since I was eight years old to one day write Batman comics came true. And my dear buddy, fellow DC Comics junior woodchuck, Bob Rosakis and I wrote a three-parter for Detective Comics and that changed my history. Um, but during the course of those first couple of years that I was working at DC, call it 72, 73, 74, I don't remember if I was still with them in 75 working summers. I think I was. Um, they all got to know me. And my mentor there was Saul Harrison, who had brought me into the company. Saul then became president of DC Comics. They knew how much I loved these comic books. They knew how much I loved Batman. Um, God bless Gerda Gattel. She was the uh, archivist, the keeper of the keys to the DC library. And she was a, a wonderful Eastern European lady with a thick accent. And she knew about my love for it. And she used to let me go into the library at lunch hours um, and would lock me in and would bring down volumes of books for me to read. And by the time I concluded my years at DC, I had read every DC comic book up to that point. 
Um, what an education. Uh, I would often stay late in, uh, after work and I would sit with Murray Boltonoff, one of the editors, and talk to him and hear his stories. I was one of the only people who ever sat with Bob Kaniger, who didn't get along with too many people, um, who would tell me all these stories in history and 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 Julie and and Bernie Cashton, who was the um, Bernie Donenfeld, who was the uh, uh, the lawyer there. Um, it, it was such a rich education, but everybody got to know me. So when the day came, when I went back to D.C. and I said to Saul, I want to buy the rights to Batman. I want to make dark and serious Batman movies and show this whole world that the true Batman created in 1939 by Bob Kane and Bill Finger aided and abetted quite substantially uh, thereafter by Jerry Robinson, that that Batman is not the pot-bellied, funny, campy, pow-zap-wham Batman that the whole world knew. That was their only interpretation to the whole world of Batman. A comedy, a joke, some, somebody you can laugh at which just killed me as a hardcore fan in January 66 when the show came on the air. Um, in, in fact, that night, January 66, I was watching it with my friends. And that, that was the night in the den downstairs at my house, I made a vow, just like young Bruce Wayne. Right, with the bat coming in through the window. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the only difference between us was his parents were lying dead and bloodied in the street. Mine were safe in the kitchen upstairs. Yeah. But... I vowed that somehow, someday, I would find a way to show the whole world the true Batman, the creature of the night stalking disturbed criminals from the shadows. And I would find a way to erase these new words, pow, zap, and wham, from the collective consciousness of the world culture. <laughs> I love it. Um, so that's where, that's where it took root. Um, so Saul said to me, Michael, Michael, for God's sake, he was very fatherly. He, he was a wonderful man. He says, Michael, Michael, for God's sake, don't do this. He said, son, don't you understand that when Batman went off the air on television, the brand became as, this is a quote, gentlemen, as dead as a dodo, unquote. He said, nobody's interested in Batman anymore. I said, yeah, but Saul, nobody's ever done a dark and serious comic book movie, superhero movie. It'll be almost like a new form of entertainment. And he said, is there any way I can talk you out of this? And I said, no. And he said, and this is another quote. Okay, schmoozel, come <laughs> on in. Um, that was how the thing began. Um, so when people today who say it's impossible to have a kid in his 20s buy the rights to Batman, it's inconceivable. It can't happen. In the context of the times, it can and the answer to how it could happen is a very unglamorous answer. The answer is simply nobody else on the planet Earth showed up. Mm. And you stuck to your guns. You have really had a desire to do this. And I mean, that usually is, is the difference is that, you know, you follow your dreams and, and you keep pushing, then you're going to get an opportunity. Like you said, put your foot in the crack in the door now now again because i'm i'm time conscious i just want to just ask you 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 made that pitch you made that effort 
the offer eventually got put on the table, whatever the amount was. How long was it between that initial walking through the front door and a deal closing? Uh, we walked, all right. So that conversation with Saul took place in April of 1979. Um, my new Batman partner, Benjamin Melnicker, uh, a legend in the movie business. And he was my dad's age. Uh, he was like a second father to me in many ways. Um, we formed Bat Film Productions, Inc. and signed the deal with DC on October 3rd, 1979. So it was a six month negotiation, which was great because that gave me time to raise the money I needed privately. Got it. And um, so we bought the rights on October 3rd and I figured this is going to be a slam dunk. I, uh, I quit my job. I went out to Hollywood uh, to pitch to the studios and I figured they're going to line up at my doorstep. I mean, how could they not see the potential for sequels and toys and games and animation? And this is going to be easy. I was then turned down by every single studio in Hollywood, every major studio, every mini major studio. I was uh, asked to leave some offices. I was told uh, left and right, this was the worst idea they ever heard. I was repeatedly told I was crazy. I said, kid, you can't make serious comic book movies. You're out of your mind. You can't do dark superheroes. You're insane. You can't take an old TV series and make a movie out of it. Nobody's ever done that. As a result. That's a challenge right there. From the time I bought the rights until we got our first movie made with Michael Keaton and Jack Nicholson, courtesy of the genius known as Tim Burton, 10 years it was a human endurance contest. And what do you do when for year after year, you hear nothing but negativity, nothing but rejection, people telling you you're crazy. Um, I'll tell you what you do. You look deep inside you. It tests your metal as a human being. And, and you've, got, you've got to figure it out. And, and for me, it was always, okay, am I just being stubborn? And the whole world is right and I'm wrong. Or... Do I absolutely completely believe in this and in myself? And I kept coming up with the latter answer. So my challenge was to figure out ways over a 10-year period to hold on by my fingertips till something can happen. And, um, and if, if I can take another minute, Please. there's a story I want to tell you. Please. Um, yeah, I, by the way, um, Stan Lee always told me, Michael, you know, whenever you can work in a plug, for God's sake, work in a plug. Um, <laughs> so um, this whole story I tell in my memoir, The Boy Who Loved Batman, which is um, originally published in hardback. The new revised trade paperback edition is out now on Amazon, et cetera, et cetera, The Boy Who Loved Batman. But the sequel memoir is going to be published March 1st, 2022. And before I tell you the title, I need to tell you this story. Ben and I had just been gotten our rejection from the final studio. And um, they had told me in that meeting, they said, look, kid, if you want to make, if you really want to make a Batman movie, we'll consider it. But it's got to be that funny potbellied pow zap wham guy, because that's the only Batman that audiences will remember and love. And I sat there in a pitch meeting 
at the studio and said no. And the production executive who had been there for decades rolls his chair right in front of me and he leans in and he says, son, and by the way, every time somebody calls me son, I know I'm in trouble. He said, son, (laughs) better to have a movie made than no movie at all. And without even looking at Ben, I just said to him, no. So that was it. That was the last studio. Ben and I are sitting on a bench on the studio lot after this. My head is literally down. Uh, it, it, was, it was one of the two lowest points of my career. And Ben looked at me and he said, you know, Michael, it's pretty interesting to me that our final no on Batman came from you. He said, you know what that makes you? I said, yeah, Ben, I know, an idiot. He says, no, no, not at all. He goes, it makes you Batman's Batman. I said, what what are you talking about? He says, Michael, you have this vision that you believe is a true vision to do this in a dark and serious way, uh, emulating the way the creators had intended. And you've just shown me you're willing to sacrifice everything and anything money, getting a a major movie made in order to see that Batman is handled properly. According to this vision, he says, you're Batman's defender. He said, you're Batman's protector. He says, Michael, you're Batman's Batman. The name of my sequel memoir is Batman's Batman. Fantastic. I love it. I love it. So, yeah, after that's fantastic, by the way. Congratulations. Uh, we look forward to the, I mean, the paperback, uh, our trade paperback. I want to uh, check out, but the, the sequel is going to be really cool, too. Um, after, I think it's about 40 Batman related films or Batman films, uh, here you are, The Boy Who Loved Batman. Main book is out, memoir uh, part two is coming out. Um, and what is the status with the Broadway project? It's the most exciting thing of my career since Batman started in 1979. Batman and the 10 years and going through that, that began in the first quarter of my career. Uh, I'm now clearly in the fourth quarter of my career. So the fact that coming up this, uh, this coming year, 2022, the sequel book is coming out in March. The new Batman solo movie, The Batman, courtesy of another genius, Matt Reeves, is yeah. coming in March. There's going to be a great new animated series. And, and, and I always li- love to shift the spotlight to all the ladies and gentlemen who have been involved in Batman animation. They are brilliant and heroes. Some of the best, best stories of Batman in the media have taken place courtesy of people like Bruce Tim, Paul Dini, Alan Burnett, um, the talents of Andrea Romano, um, the majesty of Sam Register, and so many people that, that work over there and have worked over there. In fact, I'll contend to this day, Perhaps the best Batman story ever told in the media is Mask of the Phantasm. Yeah, great, um, great, great, great an, an incredible piece of work. Um, they they deserve more of the spotlight. 
um, God, Kevin Conroy, Mark Hamill. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, oh, yeah. I said to Mark, you know, if, if they ever build a Mount Rushmore to the Joker, it's going to be Jack Nicholson, Heath Ledger, Joaquin Phoenix, and you. Yeah. Uh, and deservedly so. Um, and then, you know, I, I, November of 2022 is the return of Michael Keaton as Batman and the 89 Batmobile and, and all that great stuff. I mean, it's amazing what's coming up. And, and, and for me, the, the cherry on top of the whole thing is the fact that the Nederlander organization of Broadway, which owns roughly half the theaters of Broadway, I think the Schubert's own the other half, uh, the Nederlander organization reached out to me and said, um, we would like to take your book and turn it into a Broadway play. Fantastic. And it is moving forward on a fast track. Um, there'll be some major, major announcements coming up over the next couple of months, um, but it is moving forward. I am thrilled. I love working with the Nederlander organization. In addition to the Broadway theaters, they own fabulous theaters all over North America, including the Pantages in LA. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, there's going to be when you finally hear about who the director will be and, and some of the other elements, <laughs> it's it's just so very exciting to me and to see my life. And and you have to understand that. And I think you guys do. Since I was a kid, I have viewed life through the lens of a comic book. Sure. My whole life has been a comic book and the people who were there to support me. And to support the needs of one geeky, strange kid, my parents, some of my teachers, you know, you don't believe in superheroes in real life. Well, then you've never met a great teacher. Mm -hmm. um, ben, Stan Lee, Saul Harrison, Denny O'Neill, Julie Schwartz. There are so many people in my life who have been my real life superheroes. And then there have been those people like the studio execs who said, you're crazy. Uh, you know, get out of here. And uh, many others along the way, the, the naysayers, um, they I, I've always seen as my version of Batman supervillains. Uh, I, I can describe each one to you as a different Batman supervillain in my life. And, and, and this play takes that and brings that to life. And um, I think anybody, you don't have to know anything about Batman. You don't have to know anything about comic books when it comes to this play. If you've ever had a dream, if you've ever dared to dream big, um, it's a story of how you can make your dreams come true. It's, a, it's about a story if you have a passion in life, if you can get out, get up off the goddamn couch, be proactive, investigate, discover what your passions might be. And then actively try to pursue them, uh, not easily take no for an answer, have a high threshold for frustration, do what my mom taught me and my brother Paul to do, which is once you make a commitment, you stick to it, you persevere. Isn't that what Bruce Wayne did? Mm. Isn't, his, isn't the fact that as a kid, he made a commitment to get the, guy, the bad guys who did this to his parents to get all the bad guys, even if he had to walk through hell for the rest of his life? And then he did that and becomes an urban legend. It becomes the dark night. It's no different in real life for the rest of us. Once you make a commitment, you persevere. You endure the 10 years of pain and suffering. You endure the times of not knowing how you're going to pay your bills next week 
never mind next month. You make great sacrifices because unlike what too many people today seem to expect, the world's not going to come to you. The world owes you nothing. And the great things in life don't necessarily come quick or come easily. When I got out to Hollywood, I thought, okay, this is going to be a war. Every day I'm going to go to battle and fight for my Batman movie. It, it wasn't that at all. What I learned the hard way is that it, Hollywood, like life itself, is a siege. And what you need to do is dig a foxhole and put on a helmet. And the most important decision you have to make is who you let in to that foxhole with you to watch your back. Mm. And, and if you just follow these basic things, you have the power to make your own dreams come true. And that's what this play is about. That's what my book is about. And happily, that's what my life's been about. Excellent. Excellent. Mike, I'd like to, and we both would like to thank you for this. What turned out to be a collegiate level lecture on realizing dreams. And it's been really special to hear you both share memories and uh, important lessons. Our, our audience are mostly emerging writing writers, and they have learned a lot from you today. Thank you Absolutely. very much. Absolutely. Michael, I'm, I'm used. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go. What were you going to say, Mike? Well, now that you mentioned writers, I just have to uh, add a postscript to it. Um, I learned so much about graphic storytelling uh, as a comic book and later as a graphic novel writer. I've written a whole bunch of them. Um, I seem to like, I seem to prefer people with fedoras for some reason. Uh, <laughs> as over the years, I've, I've written The Shadow, The Question, The Green Hornet. Uh, I did a Batman hardback graphic novel called Detective Number 27, uh, which was very pulp inspired. And mm. I got Bruce Wayne back into a fedora. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's, there, there's been something about that, uh, the spirit I wrote. Um, but I learned so much in graphic storytelling from Danny O'Neill, mm. from Julie Schwartz, whose motto to all of us young writers was always B.O. <laughs> no, it didn't mean that. It, be original. Yeah. Um, and then from Alex Toth, mm, sure. Oh my God, legendary artist. I was honored to become the very first writer of the question following Steve Ditko, his creator. And I was doubly honored to be working with the legendary Alex Toth. Mm. And what Alex told me and taught me in that first. In, in, that, in that question story we did uh, was incredible. And, and it's all lessons I will never forget. Um, happily, that story has been reprinted in the DC archives um, and it's worth taking a look at Alex's mastery. Of, what, what was uh, the name of, the of that one? Uh, it was uh, Action Heroes Archives Volume 2. It was the old Charlton characters. Mm -hmm. uh, they did two volumes with Captain Adam, Blue Beetle, um, Peacemaker, you know, all, all of those characters. And um, uh, my question story is in there. I was the only writer in between Steve Ditko and Denny O'Neill. Wow, that's fantastic. Wow. I, I, was I, just wanted, I just wanted to give those guys credit. Sure. And, and well, you should. Well, well, you should. I mean, we, we all uh, get to stand on the shoulders of those who've come before us. And it serves 
us and honors them that we don't forget that. And and yeah, when yeah. yeah, and when the opportunity turns around and as we you know Chris and I have tried to do over the years is to help others. You know, it's it's again you pass the baton and you pass on whatever you've learned and you shine a light. Yeah, and the people you talk about, I, I knew Denny, and uh, he was remarkable, and he was so giving and sharing of his skills and his knowledge, and so it's a fine example for anybody who learned under him to, again, pass that on, so I, I totally get it. Uh, again, Michael, I understand your timetable, so I, I, as Chris said, I also want to just thank you for this, and I want to beg you that uh, as the clocks turn and all that, and the sands drop through the hourglass, that we try and do this again at some point so that Love we to can... do it like next February or something when things are just about to all come out would be See, great. now I was, tr I was trying to give him the space for that, but you know, that we can do it. Absolutely. Wait, I learned today to be bold. I learned <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, that we can do it uh, again. I would, I'd love to. Yeah. Cause there's so much, uh, so much more. Yeah. We could, we could do a whole hour just on Stan Lee. Um, oh, sure. I, I have Stanley anecdotes um, <laughs> that need to be told, that need to be told. Um, but, but also the fact that as a kid, my dad and mom used to take their Sundays. And I told you, my dad worked six days a week. And they would drive me to the homes of artists and writers and editors on a Sunday where I would arrange to go up to their home to interview them. This is when I was 13, 14, 15, 16 wow. years old. Wow. Um, so I, I spent an inordinate amount of time with people like Otto Binder, who introduced me to C.C. Beck, and we began a oh. weekly correspondence through the mail. Um, uh, Joe Simon, who I became very, very close to, and, and got all these stories straight from the horse's mouths. I, I would, um, on any holiday from school, we would, me and my friend Bobby would uh, go to New York City as kids, uh, take the Tuesday afternoon DC tours where they gave out original artwork, uh, and that's where that was the <laughs> yeah. first place I, I got to meet Bill Finger. I met him yeah. twice. I sat with Bill Finger at 1965 New York Comic Con, and he told me the story of the creation of Batman. Wow! Bill there Finger you told yep. it to me. You, wow. from, from, literally um, from the horse's mouth. Yeah, really. Literally. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I, I, I went to Tower. I went to Harvey Comics. I went to Archie Comics. I went to uh, Gold Key Comics. I went to all these places and got all this stuff um, that, that is unique and firsthand. I worked with Walter Gibson, the guy who really is responsible for the creation of the shadow as yes. we know it. Yes. And Walter shared information and secrets with me that were quite wonderful. He was Harry Houdini's last living associate. Um, God, there, there are so many stories to be told. I told a bunch of my first book. I'm telling a hundred more in my second book, um, but I'm going to reserve a whole chunk for us to do in yes. our next session. Yes, yes that's yes, fantastic. Yes. Absolutely perfect. Thank you. Michael, you are a wonderful, giving human being. I knew this was going to be enjoyable, and I thank you, thank you, thank you for taking the time. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you for your passion. It's really, really inspiring. Thank you very much. Folks, Thanks, whatever, whatever you heard here today, take it to heart, write it down, engrave it on your forehead, and be back the next time when we talk to other people. And, and Chris and I share whatever we can, too, to help you tell your damn story. Take care, everybody. Peace.